chapter 23 this morning. You know, we've covered some pretty rough ground here in the last couple chapters in Acts. <laughs> and we're at another section this morning that's got a few difficulties in it. We left the Apostle Paul in chapter 22 um, up in the barracks of the Romans, nearly barely escaping a, a beating that could have maimed him at least and cost him his life at worst by claiming his Roman citizenship. And uh, we've got a very perplexed Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, not speaking Hebrew. He didn't understand the speech that Paul gave, I believe, to the Jews. And so he's still um, struggling to understand what would cause this crowd to be so violently hateful of the Apostle Paul. And um, you might have wondered why it was that Paul's Roman citizenship was never questioned. Did you ever notice that? He claimed he was a Roman citizen and they didn't say prove it. Well, the reason for that is it was the death penalty to falsely claim Roman citizenship. And so no one ever did that just on a whim. And uh, so Paul was spared that beating. Let's read uh, the last verse of chapter 22, verse 30 there. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We're going to stop right there. We're just going to go five verses here into this chapter. The commander Claudius Lysias summoned a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's who this council is they're referring to, you know. It's the Sanhedrin. I remind you, 70 members, when they're all present, it's not a small group. There might be 70 here today. I don't know, maybe not. That's a pretty good-sized group. And so we've got Paul brought before the Sanhedrin, and it might be helpful for me to mention here at this point that this is at least the sixth, time in the book of Acts that this Sanhedrin council has heard the gospel and the claims of Christ by the apostles at one point 
or another, the sixth time. That's remarkable that God had that much mercy on them to hear the gospel six times. How many people go through their lives and they don't hear the gospel one time? But these have heard it six. It says he was looking intently at them in verse 1. Looking intently. Two times that word appears in Luke's gospel. Two times it appears in the book of Corinthians, looking intently. But ten times in the book of Acts, that word appears. Sometimes it's gazing intently, and so on. But it means earnestly fastening their eyes upon. And in this case, it represents a boldness, a confidence. He's standing before these people, this Jewish governing council of 70 members, and he's got the power of the Holy Spirit on him, a boldness and a confidence. And he begins to speak, and he calls them brethren again. Isn't that, ama- isn't that amazing? He calls them brethren again. And he talks about his conscience, his perfectly good conscience. Now, this brings us another opportunity here to speak on that topic, the conscience. And so my first heading is just that. It's this perfectly good conscience Paul's talking about. And so the bulk of the sermon will be centered around that. But here we've got the conscience. In the Greek it means moral consciousness. It's a type of moral awareness. The conscience. Webster says, the conscience is this. He says it's the faculty, power, or principle within us which decides on the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of our own actions and affections and instantly approves or condemns them. It's the conscience. We all know what that is, don't we? Because we've all been smitten by our conscience at one point or another condemned by it in our actions. Everyone has a conscience. The unconverted man has a conscience. Even the pagan has a conscience. In Romans uh, Romans 2 and verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness. And their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So you've got the man of the world, he knows what he's doing is wrong. And his own conscience tells him that. So we've got the conscience. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 1.12, the testimony of our conscience. So it's always testifying, whether for us or against us, in our, in our mind and in our heart. So he gives this bold declaration here with his eyes intently, looking at the council, and, and uh, he says that I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And that's pretty bold, I would say, wouldn't you? In Second Corinthians, he says our proud confidence is this. 
the testimony of our conscience. That's pretty bold for the apostle right there. He's saying, I've conducted myself so as to maintain a good conscience. I did what I believed to be right up to this day. He thought he ought to do what he did. And what he did, he did with a zeal toward God up to this day. Now, no man is able, of course, to say that he is free from defects, free from transgressions, free from sins. That's not what the apostle is saying here. He's not saying I'm free from transgression or sin to this day. He's saying everything I did up to this day, I did um, thinking that I ought to do it. And in his conscience, he felt he was right. He acted in accordance with his convictions. Now, he calls it a perfectly good conscience here in his words. And so I want to ask two questions right here at the start. The first question is, how is a perfectly good conscience obtained? And then the second question I want to ask is, how is a perfectly good conscience maintained? We've got to be clear on those two things. First, how is it obtained? Well, we can say in a negative way, it's not obtained through external religion. A clear conscience before God is not obtained through external religion. Doing good deeds, being a good old boy, always around to help. Any manner of religious good deeds and works and so on. That's not how we obtain a clear conscience before God. It doesn't work. We've got Hebrews 9.9 talking about gifts and sacrifices in the temple. They're offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They cannot make him perfect. All of those sacrifices. He goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Now that's pretty good logic right there, isn't it? (laughs) If all you had to do was pick out from your flock this best goat or this best lamb and go and offer it, and it worked... Why would you have to keep doing that all the time? That's pretty good logic. He says, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. That's the conscience. So you see, religious deeds and works and all of that, they don't, they don't clean someone's conscience before God. No manner of tears, no manner of praying, no manner of Bible reading and attending services and meetings and doing good and so on and so on. No manner of praying the rosary and confessions and taking communion and all of that external stuff. (laughs) No man can obtain a clean conscience before God by doing those things. So not through external religion, but by faith in the perfect, the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Those Old Testament sacrifices, all they were doing was pointing ahead toward the one that could cleanse the conscience. And that was Christ. And again, Hebrews 
9 and verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? Faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. He says in chapter 10 and verse 22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's internal, not external. So you see, it's not sinless perfection that produces freedom from guilt. It's forgiveness of sin that produces freedom from guilt. So that's how a clean conscience, a good conscience, is obtained before God. Faith in Christ and not external religion. So the second question I asked is, how is, it good? How is a good conscience maintained? Well, I offer this verse to you from Acts chapter 24 and verse 16. We'll get to it whenever we get to that section in preaching through the book, but here it's, I've got to include it here. It's so perfect. Paul said again, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Now, that's strictly maintaining a conscience he's talking about right there. How do I maintain a clear conscience? Well, I offer these principles. He says, I do my best. To me, that's effort. It takes effort to maintain a good conscience. And that word maintain means hold in the original language. How do I hold my good conscience? It takes effort. You've got to work at it. I do my best. The King James says, exercise myself. I exercise myself. It takes work. There's some effort there to maintain a good conscience. Second, I would say consistency. He says, I do my best always. We've got to be consistent to maintain a good conscience. And then third, I would say, we've got to aim at it. He says, I always do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. There's the aim. So you've got the effort, you've got the consistency, you've got the aim before God and before men. And he says blameless, there's innocence. So we've got this aim, innocence before God, innocence before men. So we've got an aim, our relationships. That's our relationships, isn't it? Our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. I've got to aim for innocence in all of that. And I've got to aim consistently, and it takes effort. So that's how we maintain a good conscience before God. Our, our innocence in our relationship to Him and in our relationships to one another. Maintain a good conscience. I make, we could rephrase it like this. I make efforts to consistently maintain innocence in my relationships with God and with men. 
that would be a worthwhile paraphrase of that verse. So it includes a sense of um, ongoing, continued reconciliation between God and between men. Now I've got another verse here when we're talking about principles for maintaining a clear conscience. And this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul speaking about his ministry to the Corinthians, he says this, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now there's some good principles contained in that verse right there in regard to maintaining our conscience. One is, live honestly. He says, I have renounced the the things hidden. That is, I've disowned dishonesty. The things hidden in the King James literally is dishonesty. So, I have disowned dishonesty. The NAS calls them shameful things. And then he also says, not walking in craftiness. That's like scheming, underhanded things, underlying motives, things like that. Intentionally short of full disclosure, schemes, scheming. So he he says, live honestly. Then he says, live upon pure and accurate Bible interpretation, not adulterating the Word of God. And I understand that to mean not changing the, not putting a spin on the Bible so that it covers my agenda. That's not dealing truthfully with the Word of God. So if we're to maintain a clean conscience, we've got to live honestly, right? Renounce the things that are hidden and live upon pure and accurate Bible interpretation, not adulterating the Word of God. And then I I say another principle is live in the light. He says, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, living in the light. In the sight of God. Everything we do is in the sight of God as believers and open to the eyes of God, all of our motives, of our heart, and so on. And so I think that's living in the light, not having anything to hide above the table and all of that. So you've got living honestly, pure and accurate interpretation of the Bible in regard to how we relate to one another and so on, and living in the light. Those things are three principles, I believe, right here that allow a man to commend himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So we've got maintaining a good conscience after you've obtained a good conscience. Now, I want to talk a little bit here on some various aspects of the conscience. And we've got it talked about in the Bible in different places. And so... um, We'll look at some verses regarding that. We've got a seared conscience. Do you know you can do that? 
sear your conscience. Render it insensitive. Have you ever burned your finger before? Whenever you burn your finger, you don't have soft skin on the end of your finger anymore. You've got this hard burned section right there, and it's not sensitive anymore to feeling little things. Your fingers are very sensitive, you know. But if you burn them, they're not. So it's like the conscience is that way. It can be seared, so it's rendered insensitive. You've got it in 1 Timothy 4 too. By means of hypocrisy of liars, these people are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So you can sear your conscience. Jeremiah 6, verse 15, he, he's talking about uh, the people in his day, they were ashamed. Were, he asked the question, were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. It's like uh, the conscience has been seared and after a while there's a death of shame. You don't, you're not even ashamed of the things you do anymore. Have you ever noticed that about people? The conscience is seared. So they did not even know how to blush. Did you know you could have a calloused conscience? It's kind of along the same line here as seared. But Ephesians 4.18 speaks of the hardness of the heart. He says in verse 19, they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality and so on. The practice of every evil deed. Callousness. You know, initially when you, when you have a, a rub on something, it's painful. But you continue to rub on something and eventually you get a callus there and it's not painful anymore. That's what we're talking about in regard to the conscience. <clears throat> we can practice something until we become insensitive to it. Did you know you can have a defiled conscience? The Bible speaks of that. Titus 1.15 To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience is defiled. So you've got the mind and the conscience linked together there. Corrupt thinking and a polluted, defiled conscience. That word defiled in the in the original literally means soiled. That's a pretty good word, I think. A soiled conscience. <clears throat> Did you know you could have a weak conscience? The Bible speaks about that too. And my understanding of that is that the conscience is affected by our understanding of things. Um, The light that one does or does not possess. You know, um, we, the Bible talks about a weak conscience, um, particularly in those chapters where it's talking about Christian liberty. Here's this man, he can't eat this food because it's been offered to an idol. The Bible says that he's got a weak conscience. And that's based on his lack of knowledge or understanding of the situation. He doesn't have the light that another man has who understands that an idol is nothing. So what's this food offered to a piece of wood? It's nothing. You see that right there? So the conscience can be affected by our, the light that we have, our understanding of things. Um, here's, another, here's this brother who's, who's, 
who's got the understanding and it's not anything to him to eat this meat offered to an idol, but he sits down next to a guy who points out, you've got your, that, that meat was offered to an idol, don't eat that, brother. So what is the word to that man? He's supposed to just go on and enjoy his liberty at the risk of the other man's heart? No, he's not supposed to do that. Out of love for that brother right there who has the weak conscience because of his lack of light, that man is to forego and not eat it. When you sit down to a meal, says Paul to these Corinthians, don't ask questions for conscience sake. In other words, don't make this meal a moral issue at all. View it as being amoral. It's nothing. But if somebody sitting beside you points out to him it is something, you've got to honor that man's weak conscience. And so you can have a weak conscience. Every true Christian, even a true Christian, can have a weak conscience. Did you know you can have a mistaken conscience? Paul said in Acts 26 and verse 9, So then I thought to myself I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He thought he was doing right. His conscience was mistaken. You know, the conscience is not an infallible guide. It reacts according to the light that it has, like I just said. And so Paul, standing here before this Sanhedrin, he means to say that he persecuted Christians conscientiously. Even though he was a Pharisee, he was a, a mistaken Pharisee, he thought he was doing God a favor by trying to eradicate these Christians. And he was following his conscience in it. And when he was converted from Judaism to Christianity on the road to Damascus, he began to follow Christ with an enlightened conscience. And he turned away. So before his conscience was mistaken and now it's it's enlightened. I believe that's what he's saying here when he says up to this day. He was conscientious, at least, in both, in both conditions. You know that word conscientious right there? I used to think that, that meant something like um, you were really sincere, you were trying hard. Somebody did this conscientiously, but I, <clears throat> it doesn't mean that. You know, you've heard of a conscientious objector to the war and so on. That's someone who won't go to war because they've got a moral problem with it. It offends their conscience. So that's what that, that means right there. I just interject that. Jesus said in John 16.2, An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. A mistaken conscience. Paul said in, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, To me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. That's interesting, isn't it? He goes on to say, I'm not conscious or I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, my conscience doesn't condemn me. But I'm not by this acquitted. 
In other words, I could be wrong. The one who examines me is the Lord. So that's an interesting concept right there, I think. He's saying, I'm not conscious of any evil or unfaithfulness in my ministry, but I could be wrong. He acknowledges that. My own mind doesn't condemn me of a lack of integrity in this office right here. But I'm, I could be wrong. Yet, I am not acquitted by this. I'm not justified just because I'm not aware of anything I've done wrong. The conscience can be mistaken. It's not infallible. It's not final. God, we've got to turn the whole matter over to God. The one in the end who examines me is the Lord. It's by His judgment that I stand or I fall. In other words, so my conscience is not infallible. Well, I would also say this. The conscience has got to be coupled with Spirit-illuminated truth. Now, you've got the conscience, and you've got the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Now you've got a potent combination right there that you can stand on. And this is what I offer on that point. Romans 9 and verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now that word testifies right there just means it jointly corroborates my conscience with the Holy Spirit. Now that's good right there. The conscience and the Holy Spirit together. So we've got to have our conscience coupled with the Holy Spirit and with the truth. Now I want to bring one more out. One, one more principle or aspect of the conscience here before we move on from this. And that is the danger of a neglected conscience. There is a great danger right there. It must not only be obtained and maintained, but the conscience must be followed. We're not to be defiling our conscience, going against it, and so on. You've got 1 Timothy 1.19 right there. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. That was the end right there. We've got to keep faith and a good conscience. Now, keeping faith right here is not maybe what you would normally think that it means. It's not being filled with faith like confidence in God or something like that. Keeping faith is mean, means being faithful. It's moral faithfulness, loyalty of conviction. That's what keeping faith means. So he's saying we've got to be morally, loyally faithful and coupled that with a good conscience. 
And if you don't, if you reject that, like some have, the danger that we're in is shipwreck in regard to your faith. So people make shipwreck of their faith by not keeping a good conscience, not following its dictates, and so on. Under this heading of the danger of a neglected conscience, I offer Psalm 32 to you to consider in verse 3 and uh, 3 through 5. David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uh, I believe this is his offended conscience in regard to his sin. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away, as with the fever of the summer. That word vitality right there is literally vigor and juices. (laughs) He dried up inside. The hand of God was on him. That's what he called it. The hand of God was on me day and night. And I dried up inside. My vitality was gone. Then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. So I hold all of this to be like his conscience right there. The hand of God was on him because of his unconfessed sin and so on, and it, he, he was wasting away. So I put that under the, this heading of the danger of a neglected conscience. When he came to the Lord and confessed his sin and received forgiveness, the, the guilt was, was lifted and removed. So then, then lastly, we ought to make it a prayer. I want you to make it a prayer. <clears throat> for your leaders that they would maintain a clear conscience in, in all that they do in the ministry and in personal life. And I get that from Hebrews 13 and verse 18. The writer there says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, that's obtained it, and desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, that's maintain it. So he's asking for prayer that way. And I think that's very valid. You ought to pray for your, for your leaders that way. Having obtained a clear conscience, he says we're sure that we have a good conscience. Now pray that we maintain it, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So it's not a small thing to obtain and maintain a perfectly good conscience, is it? It's a it's a big thing in the in the in the mind and the eyes of God. Okay, so enough from of that verse right there. We're back in in Acts twenty three here again. He says, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day, and that's after he's looking intently at the council, and that got him slapped. That f- statement right there. Ananias ordered Paul to be slapped. A slap to the face. Um, Whenever you think of a slap to the face, what do you think of? A rebuke? Maybe an insult? Somebody insults another person, slaps them in the face? 
you got to think of maybe humiliation or demeaning somehow. So Paul got slapped in the face when he when he spoke boldly like that and dared to say that he had a clear conscience in everything that he did up to that point in time. I think the anger of Ananias here was aroused because Paul affirmed that all that he'd done up to that point was with a clear conscience, and they regarded him as an apostate, as a traitor, as a turncoat. Because it was the high priest that was giving him papers to go out and arrest these Christians, even as far as Damascus, and bring them back and put them in jail and all of that. I mean, he was the tip of the spear as far as Christian persecution goes. And now he's saying, I did all of that, and now... I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ with a perfect conscience, and Ananias had him slapped as a result. Now, there are some literal parallels here in the, in the Bible. Jesus was slapped. Remember in John 18, verse 22, and that came as a result of something that he said when he was on trial there. He said, um, um, <clears throat> what was that? Oh, he said something in regard to his public ministry, the things that I had spoken. Um, asked the people that I said it to. I didn't do anything in secret and so on. And so he was, says, when he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? It's an incredible parallel, isn't it? And Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, that, that, that insult, that reproach right there, that humiliation was unwarranted. It was unjust. And he got slapped in the face. Then the Lord in Matthew 26, they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him. So there it was again. We've got it in the case of uh, the prophets, Micaiah. Zedekiah, who was a competing prophet, a false prophet, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And so there's that insult again, always. So we've got those literal parallels right there, Paul getting slapped in the face. We've got some figurative parallels there. In the case of Job, he says, they gaped at me with their mouth and they slapped me on the cheek with contempt. So here you've got people treating someone with contempt, using their words and their mouth, and he likens it to a slap in the face. Um, You've got it with Jeremiah in the same way. In Jeremiah 18, they were saying to him, or they're saying to one another in regard to him, come on and let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. So you've got it figuratively, this idea of slapping someone on, in the face with things that we say can be done also. And Paul, and what's difficult right here for me is in this account, is his response. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. He calls him a whitewashed wall, which is understandable. I mean, it's his hypocrisy. Jesus 
called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, right? They were clean and painted white on the outside, but inside they were full of uncleanness and so on. So here's hypocrisy. Paul points out Ananias' hypocrisy, calling him a whitewashed wall. But he says, God is going to strike you. And I don't know really how to take that. Uh, Neither does anybody else. So that's a little comforting to me. Sometimes, some people say that this was a prophecy in regard to Ananias. Some people say it was an an imprecatory saying, like David prayed some of the Psalms, you know, or praying... Uh, almost like a curse, pronouncing a curse on, on his enemies and so on. Some people say it was that. I don't know how to take it right here, but it is interesting to note that this guy, Ananias, the high priest, according to Josephus, the historian, says that his probable end as is generally thought, is remarkable that five years after this, in the beginning of the wars of the Jews with the Romans, this same Ananias, hiding himself in the ruins of a conduit, was discovered and taken out and killed. And so, I don't know if that's a fulfillment of this thing right here. God is going to strike you, you hypocrite. It could be a prophetical announcement. But here we've got this strange turn. You've got Paul's error and his apology. And it's a little bit troubling again to me. One of the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul basically says he didn't know that that's who that guy was. He says, I am not aware. I was not aware, brethren that he was high priest. So, it's not evident in this text how the Apostle Paul could not know that this man was the high priest, acting in the office of the high priest. And it's... it's, um, it's quite confusing, at least in my mind and in the minds of plenty of the commentators. I'll give you some of their theories in regard to this. First off, some say that he it wasn't that he didn't know that Ananias was the high priest, but he just didn't know that the command came from Ananias. Here's 70 people around. He didn't know where the command came from for him to be struck on the mouth. Now, some of these are not very satisfying. (laughs) Here's another one. Some say Paul's eyes were weak. (laughs) He didn't have... Well, wait a minute. I see you're Ananias. (laughs) Sorry about that. To me, that's not very satisfying. I mean, I understand he could have weak eyes, but I don't know. Maybe it's right. If you can't see very good. 
Some say that he did not own or acknowledge Ananias as the high priest. In other words, they say, in the mind of Paul, Jesus Christ is God's high priest and not you, Ananias. And so that's the little twist they put on it right there. He, didn't, he wasn't recognized in Paul's eyes as the high priest. Some say that he spoke with irony here. In other words, Ananias' actions were unbecoming of the office of a high priest, and if he's going to be desiring to be recognized as a high priest, he ought to act a little better than that. I'm sorry I didn't realize that you were the high priest, speaking with irony. I don't know, you can make what you want out of all of these. Here's what I think is the most satisfying out of all of them, and that is that the apostle actually did not realize that the one who had given the command was the acting high priest in that office right there. And I say that that's more satisfying because of these, for these reasons. One, the office changed regularly. And whenever you read um, the history in this, of, of Israel right at this point in time, you discover that this man Ananias, who was high priest, was, taken, was removed from office, taken away to Rome to face charges um, of injustice done in a civil nature. And he was acquitted and then returned back to Jerusalem only to find the office of high priest vacant because the man who was put in as high priest, when he was removed, um, the emperor, one of the emperors, had murdered. And so the office was vacant and he reassumed the office without being officially reinstated there. So you see there's come some con- conspiracy and intrigue involved in all of that. And so you've got all of that being somewhat confusing. I could see where the apostle said, I didn't, re- I didn't realize he was the high priest. It could be that. At least that sounds the most believable to me. <clears throat> Some say that he didn't have on his priestly robes on this occasion because this meeting was convened by a, a Roman and hurriedly in order to get to the bottom of this issue right at hand with this prisoner. And those priestly robes, if you study it out, you realize they were worn by the high priest whenever he was in uh, official capacity performing duties in the temple. In other words, you don't recognize the high priest in his garments as he's walking around town. He had those on when he was performing his duties. And so you've got this meeting hastily convened by a Roman. Some say he might not have had his garments on, and so he wasn't a standout. That coupled with the fact that all of this intrigue happened, Paul might not have even known that that was the high priest right there. That, it could be, I think, a possibility. Maybe it doesn't really matter overall, but when we try and understand the things of the Bible, I think it helps to try and dig in. If you've read through this before, you ever read through this before and said, now wait a minute, what's going on right here? 
come on, Paul, you were a Pharisee of the Pharisee. You took orders from these guys and you don't know that that's the high priest? It seems so unlikely to me. So anyway, it does us good to try and eliminate our confusion when we can. But here is the thing that I want to point out right here. In the midst of all of this Ananias' hypocrisy and Paul's error right here, we've got an apology in verse 5. Paul says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. And then he quotes Bible, For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler, of a ruler, of your people. And that's taken from Exodus 22 and verse 28. Uh, You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. And uh, at, at that point right there, it seems like it's right that we need to treat those that are in office above us with a degree of respect whether they deserve it or not. And this day and age is pretty hard to treat those in authority with any degree of respect. I mean on a national scale, right? Wouldn't you agree? But nonetheless, we ought not to call our president and others that are, that are ruling over us with derogatory terms and things like that uh, on, a, on a civil level, I mean, God has established government, and government is put there for the people, right? And we're commanded to observe all of the ordinances that are over us and so on, <clears throat> because government is put there as a terror to evildoers. And so we ought, we ought to be careful that way, I think, based on this verse right here and, and based on what Paul said right here. But of course, what he's talking about right here is in a religious context. It's the great, the great high priest. At least they're called God's, he's called God's high priest. So in a religious context, it appears that he felt bad that he had said something to the one that God had put in authority in, in the realm of re- at least religion, not in the realm of true Christianity. And he apologized. And uh, it seems we could point out here at this point that oftentimes we do err, don't we, in the way in which we respond. Um, The tone, the temper in which we say things when we respond to people, even accusations and things like that. And um, I think that Paul apparently felt that he had done that. And so he apologized for it. And so in regard to apology, based on this verse right here, I see a few points. One, it's the honorable thing to do. When you realize you've overstepped that way, you've misspoken that way, you've said something with a tone, you've said something with a temper, you've said something in error, you've said something disrespectfully. It's the honorable thing to do, to apologize. I think it's the right thing to do. It's righteous. In order to maintain a good conscience before God, before men, right? We ought to do that. I think it's the courageous thing to do. You ever notice it's the hardest thing (laughs) to humble yourself and 
say to someone, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong there. What I said there was wrong. I'm sorry. I think it's the Christian thing to do. The world doesn't care about that, you know. Uh, the guy in the job, he'll, he'll step on you and you'll never hear anything more about it. <clears throat> but it's the Christian thing to do. We ought not to do that as, as Christians. Then lastly, I would say it's the peaceful thing to do. Because what Paul did right here, he was, he, he was careful to not un, unnecessarily offend. He acted peacefully. He even opened this statement with brethren. And we've seen it all throughout this argument, all throughout this speech, how conciliatory he was toward these Jews, right? It was always an effort toward conciliation and being reconciled. He was doing the best that he can, could, to be a peacemaker. And so I think it's this apology he offered right here was an effort, again, to be peaceful. Didn't he say to the Romans in Romans 12:18, "If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be peaceable, live at peace with all men." Now that's strictly relational, right? In all of our relationships, in the fabric of all of our relationships, do the best that you personally can to be reconciled and to be at peace with everyone. Even if it means going to them and apologizing for, for a perceived offense. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it said, if you go to do your alms and you realize your brother has something against you, leave your alms at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother? It says that, doesn't it? And so that's a big thing. I think right here in keeping a clear conscience before God is being reconciled and being at peace with everyone and with, with God as well. It's, apparently that's what Paul was doing right here. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Our reactions when you read this, I don't know about you, but when I read all of this and, and I'm, I'm reading through it again here and, and Paul, he, he stands up and he says, I've kept a good, perfectly good conscience between before, before God all the way up to this day. You know, you think, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good guy. And then Ananias commands him to be slapped and I thought, man, that's rotten. Don't you? I mean, your emotions as you're reading through all of this, and you think, "Man, that was a that guy's a rat fink." I order him to be slapped like that, and then Paul turns around and gives it right back to him. You know, he says, "You whitewashed wall, God is going to slap you," and he points out his hypocrisies, and you want to stand up and shout, "Yeah, let him have it, Paul! Give him both barrels," you know, so to speak. <laughs> And then someone says, wait a minute, Buster, that's the high priest. 
you're talking to like that. And what does Paul do? He backs down. He humbles himself. And he backtracks and takes the low position. And it almost makes you want to say, rats, I, I was kind of liking it when he was giving it to him." I mean, emotionally, you know. But here he is trying to be a peacemaker. And that's admirable. That's courageous. That's right. It's Christian. It's peaceable. And so we leave the story with that. I, I like the way that, that that little encounter right there ended. So how is it with your soul today? Between God, between men, have you obtained a clear conscience? And are you doing your best always to maintain innocence in your relationships between God, before God, and before men? A perfectly good conscience.